Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Test Tubes and Cauldrons, a podcast where we talk about the science behind spirituality. So in today's episode, we are just going to do a fun spiritual shower thoughts episode. We have all partaken of mugwort and some of us some other substances tonight to make this just a really fun kind of casual relaxing episode. Full disclosure, we did intend to record this on Friday the 13th, but didn't happen. A bunch of stuff happened. We never got around to it. And then every consecutive time we tried to reschedule, something else happened. So we just kind of give up and we're recording this now uh, the next weekend, but it's fine because we found some really cool stuff that happened on Friday the 13th we want to talk about because it's cool. And it's Friday the 13th and we're like all witches and like spiritual people. So why the fuck wouldn't we? We're going to do that. And I think we decided to do rock, paper, scissors to see who's going to do it. So, okay, everybody hold up your hands. Ready? Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. Candy lost. She has to do it anyway. Okay. Oh god. Okay. Okay. So I'm I'm doing the I'm doing the what's happened on this day. Yeah. Okay. So Friday the thirteenth. It was the birth of Frederick Sanger. If you work in a lab with any kind of life science, odds are that you know his name. Sanger was born on the thirteenth of August, nineteen eighteen, albeit not on a Friday. And his contribution to science was one of the first forms of DNA sequencing. Sequencing, a process that allows us to read the chemical bases making up each unique strand of DNA, was the first step towards a molecular understanding of genetics. It's an absolutely essential process in most bio labs, although it's felt somewhat being superseded by more modern processes like Illumina, Nanopore, or PacBio. Sanger won the Nobel Prize not once, but twice. Once for his contribution towards sequencing, and again for elucidating the structures of several important proteins, including insulin. Not gonna lie, I low-key have a bit of a crush on Sanger because Sanger sequencing was like huge part of my undergrad research was great. We're going to dive into a little bit behind the history of the superstitions surrounding Friday the 13th and why it's considered unlucky. So the number 13 has been considered unlucky for numerous reasons, both in Norse cosmology, wherein the god of mischief Loki gatecrashed a banquet, bringing the total number of gods to 13 and resulting in the death of one of them. And subsequent religions had similar superstitions. For example, the 13th disciple in Christianity being associated with treachery and betrayal. Fridays were also considered to be unlucky in many, although not all places, particularly those which were uh, dominated by Christianity. Many calamitous biblical events were reported to occur on Fridays, such as Good Friday, Jesus, (laughs) Uh, and also the murder of Abel and the day that Noah set sail atop the Great Flood. Finally, there were negative associations with the Norse goddess uh, Frigga, associated with Fridays, and it was believed that she would convene a 13 personal council with witches to bring doom upon Christians. Oh no. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> wow, we're already off to a wild start. Listen, we need to be chaotic. It's fine. Katie, go ahead and do um, so it's our favorite A historians, the Victorians, who likely originated or at least popularized the tradition of Friday the 13th specifically being unlucky. Um, they, they basically combine these earlier superstitions with a, a great deal of speculation. Uh, two references in the early 19th century refers to the bad luck of Friday the 13th, once in the biography of composer uh, Giacchino Rossini, and once in the title of a novel, which refers specifically to the bad luck on that day. For all of these superstitions, it's not universal by any means. Some cultures actually consider 13 to be a lucky number, and others even have alternative Friday the 13th, for example, Friday the 17th in Italy. But nonetheless, we thought it'd be kind of fun to record like a spooky-ish shower, spooky, 
what is happening? Shower thoughts episode <laughs> on Friday the 13th. Now that we've gotten that out of the way, let's go ahead and do our shower thoughts. A lot of these were actually sent in by members of our Discord, so thank you so much in advance, in advance for that. We will try to remember to acknowledge you um, as we go through the questions, but again, we're all kind of going on something, so it might not happen. Get into the first one, which was submitted by Ban, which is, what would goldfish spirituality be like? So I had to think about this, and my first thought was that the characteristics of goldfish are that they're notoriously forgetful. However, this is a myth, and I, I want to use my space on this podcast to address that. Um, goldfish are actually quite intelligent, and they can remember things for at least five months. Although the nature and depth of these things is is yet to be kind of validated. The, the tests tend to test quite simple things like remembering where food was and such things. However, following that, I kind of like the idea that if goldfish have a short memory, maybe they would have cosmology that constantly reinvents itself and changes across time as their memories fade and renew across many generations. The other thing I found out about goldfish, which I didn't really expect to be researching for this podcast, uh, is that they can communicate with each other, but they are silent creatures. They don't communicate through sound, but they do it through touch. Um, they do it through the, the lateral lines in their gills. And this allows them to sense danger and actually flirt with one another. So this combination of communicating a lot, chattering, and a cosmology that kind of changes over time, it makes me think of folk practices. So maybe goldfish cosmology would be close to folk magic. Is there such a thing as a physical egregore? I was just thinking that with the lateral lines. Quite honestly, I don't even know how to answer this question, <laughs> like, to be totally frank. Um, yeah, goldfish spirituality is something else. I, yeah, I've got no idea. Honestly, I literally <laughs> want to do this. Okay, backstory. I, when I was younger, had a goldfish named Brownie. Don't ask me why I named a Brownie, I don't know. And when Brownie died, we buried him in the backyard and I had like whole ritual with this with this goldfish. And so when this question came up, my initial thought was like, oh, I should just like have a seance with Brownie and see what Brownie would like do magically. Can't do that because pretty sure Brownie is decomposed by now. And I don't know if I probably wouldn't be able to understand him, her. I don't even know what gender it was. But that being said, I would assume that the goldfish would probably just be more based on like survival and like the food and needs of, of that and I don't necessarily know what like magical workings a goldfish would do for that kind of thing. I imagine there might be more like group rituals because aren't goldfish more like collective? They travel together in schools. Is it called a school if it's just like goldfish versus regular fish? Yeah. So maybe some like collective ritual to like help them safely travel to their destination. I don't know. Belle, what do you think? Oh, well, it's funny you should ask because I was just um, at the aquarium and it was so funny. I literally sat on the floor and my sister was like, where she go and then i was sitting on the floor and i was looking up at the the sharks and the all the fish swimming above me and i was just like this is divinity <laughs> <laughs> i don't know exactly where i was going with that thought but basically i don't know goldfish i i don't think they have spirituality but i'd be curious how someone would work with a goldfish i do think that's interesting though that they remember things for five months that's a pretty long time I don't know, maybe you could whisper your secrets. Maybe you could whisper your sigils to a goldfish and then in five months it'll forget it. It's actually a good idea, but then they also That's they communicate through touch, right? So Wait, would you have to like get it forget it first? If it takes you have to like lunch. stroke it onto the goldfish so it would understand because it... Oh, that's actually a good idea. <laughs> wow. And I don't know, like I don't know if they're I didn't really look into this enough, but I don't know if their uh, communication system is like purely for flirting or <laughs> if it has additional like i wouldn't want to accidentally kind of get it on with the goldfish but yeah uh... use goldfish correspondences and sex magic go for it oh perfect 
<laughs> the flirting. Go for it. Oh my gosh. Wild. Okay, cool. We'll go to the next one. This one comes from Kat. I actually, so I, in all seriousness, I really like this question. And it was, what would be the ideal academic referencing style for unverified personal gnosis or UPG? I trying to remember. I know someone came up in one of the Discord, one of the Discord, in our Discord, came up with an idea for that that I thought was very interesting. So this came, yeah, this came from Archangel. Maybe be like personal communication referencing like Zeus Han Helionos personal communication 6 February 2021. So like saying like the what entity it was, comma, personal communication, maybe tarot, maybe you list the method that it came from, like dream, literally it came to me in a dream. Uh, and then the date. I mean, I do think that like the best way to do to do it is just like treat it like almost an academic journal of sorts, where almost hmm, how do I say this? Like a study on yourself, right? So you would like have the date, like have the purpose, and have what you did, and have what you experienced, what you saw, what you heard, and what you felt, and all that kind of stuff, and just like report it very objectively, and then like later after you experience it over, you can go back and be like, hmm, what did these things mean? What do I think that they meant? Or do it in the moment. That's fine, too. Like, either works. Do both. Why not? That would probably be the best way to go about it, just so that you're, like, noting your experience. Actually, you know what? You should do both because you will probably think about things differently in the moment versus later when you analyze it objectively. And this way you get the best of both worlds, and then you can analyze them together and kind of figure out what's going on. I would say that's probably the best way. Like, UPG is so hard to verify and even academically, like, study because... It's so personal and different for every single person. And the granted, there are, remember we say something is like verified personal notes it's been experienced by many people and you kind of confirm it with other with others. But even then, the things like the verified personal gnosis that I've like shared with other people, it's still very unique to the individual. So I think even if you take the most academic approach possible to try and like validate it for yourself, it's don't really think you'll ever get to the point where it'll be fully validated. Not that it needs to be because it's like a personal experience, which is not something you can validate anyways. Yeah, I think the qualitative scientists are probably laughing at us right now because a lot of qualitative research will have like quotes in and there is an APA style for in- including in-text citations and in-te- like in-text quotes from study participants. So I think, yeah, like you say, you would just include yourself as a study participant and then, but, but I think this is one of those things where it's like, gnosis versus experience like you you can't represent gnosis in text form really well maybe maybe you disagree but like yeah like the experiential aspect of that can't really be portrayed so you, you would you would just be kind of attempting to convey it to an audience i think it'd be more experience that you then turn into gnosis of sorts like you experience it and you return the experience and you go back and you're like hmm, i think this is what it means right like that's your gnosis it's also curious because i thinking about like approaching it academically We've talked previously in episodes about like double blind experiments and doing like blind studies and all these things and the importance of that. In this case, that would pretty much be impossible. So I'd be interested to then like think about how one's bias would come into play in this in like this factor too. And how that might influence your UPG so that it maybe differs from like the verified personal gnosis that maybe people collectively have about something and whether that kind of invalidates the experience. I don't think it does, but it'd be an interesting question to kind of like dive further into yeah i think it's hard to represent kenny was saying it's hard to represent like gnosis tm in text but there's definitely precedence for citing experience in text i guess the hard thing to that though then is too because like obviously you can't verify that 
And I guess I would be curious what the purpose of citing it would be as opposed to just like saying, you know, like Zeus came to me in a dream. I think maybe one of the benefits though would be keeping yourself, like not that you would lie about your UPG, but sometimes because of the way in which we experience things that then lead to Gnosis, over time, right, it could change. We could, it could become something maybe more than what it was or different than what it was. And so by noting it down in kind of an academic style, you can go back and say, oh, this is what happened. Like, this is what I experienced. This is what I thought at the time. Do I think the same thing now? I do think it might actually keep you grounded in like your recollection of the experiences that led to your UPG. And that might be interesting if you say you were discussing with somebody and you needed to like reference back to a particular instance, an experience that you had that like led to the development of that gnosis. But outside of that, I can't really think of a necessary reason to do that not a bad idea like if you want to keep track of that thing a lot of people do i mean isn't that what like a dream journal is maybe a little less rigorous but same kind of idea so this next one comes from jill arcane jill and it's what would actually have happened if they had successfully hexed the moon oh my god i consider this prior to actually recording this episode and I think there's a couple of things we need to take into consideration. The first one being what kind of hex did they use? Because that would have an impact on the effect. For instance, causing the moon to completely disappear would have intense astronomical consequences, but dimming its light for a night might not be as bad. Though that would also probably include extinguishing the sun in some manner, and that would be bad. So it kind of depends on what we're talking about in terms of the hex. And also, this is just like a really dumb thing to do, so... I don't know why anybody would do it, but... I got, like, way too deep into this. And I was like, okay, what, what if they just got rid of the moon? Like, the moon, the moon is gone. The, the moon has just gone out of the sky. Um, well, firstly, I think, like, NASA would be quite sad. Um, and secondly, <laughs> um, <laughs> we'd probably see some quite uh, devastating environmental effects. So tides wouldn't be regulated by the moon because um, they, they, they are responsible. The moon is responsible for, for tides. And so many coastal ecosystems, um, which actually rely on tides for survival, would just, they would, they would not... Uh, survive, survive that because the, they, they rely on that salinity change so the ecosystem would be wiped out massively changed and um, there are also some animals like sea slugs that rely on the cues of moonlight to hunt and mate so like like you were saying astra even even if you just change the like the brightness of the moon um, there would be knock-on effects on ecosystems which actually rely on moonlight to like, regulate themselves and finally i didn't realize this myself but the moon actually stabilizes the tilt of the earth and the tilt of the earth is responsible for the earth's seasons so we'd no longer have seasons, which, aside from the devastating environmental effects of that, probably wouldn't have a wheel of the year anymore for the Wiccans. Um, also, apparently surfing would be would be quite bad because of the tides. <laughs> um, and also the sky would be a lot brighter if we didn't have a moon. So I don't know, like, maybe from a spiritual perspective, we'd see like a shift to like more planetary magic or even fixed star astrology, because obviously people would be, like, the, 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 the physical appearance of things in the sky would be quite different. I mean, what do you think? I think it's a bad, it's a bad idea. Don't, don't hex the moon, please. I think it's interesting because of the fact that like there would be no lunar cycles. Like, what are all the witches gonna do? <laughs> like lunar phases and like lunar cycles. Sort of the first thing that most like beginners start with, right? When it comes to working like with astronomical events, and everybody's like, when the, when there's a full moon, it's like, oh my god, the moon is so pretty. We need to go look at, it. like, go stare at it for twelve hours. Valid. I don't do that, but like. If that floats your boat, go for it. Everybody would be so devastated. Not only the NASA scientists, all the witches would just be so devastated. Those are all interesting effects. I Does the tilt of the Earth have anything to do with how we rotate around the sun? Because that could also potentially have an effect. 
if we for in some manner like change our rotation because we no longer have the axes like the two that we have now that would impact how far the planets are from earth slash the sun and that could affect planetary magic in many ways i would imagine if for some reason our view of the stars was altered that would have an effect yeah i imagine planetary magic would become quite boring if we were being totally honest well maybe not though i don't feel like anybody so okay Coming from a planetary magic perspective, I will say that I don't hear people talk about the moon very much in planetary magic, and I don't know whether that's because we all just, like, hate how much it's used outside of, like, that realm, and it's made to be this, like, huge deal, and we're like, nothing, it's just another planet, like, why are we making it into this, like, lunar goddess um, type thing? We really don't, I don't hear a lot about using the moon in a planetary magic sense when I talk to the practitioners. It has its place, don't get me wrong, like, I use it in my own workings, but compared to, like, other planets you hear more about like mercury and like jupiter and saturn and occasionally mars and sometimes venus like people don't talk about the moon as much in a planetary like ceremonial sense as they do the other planets so would it have that much of an effect in that regard i don't know maybe not i guess it's also like are you spiritually like are you hexing the moon to like get rid of the moon or are you like damaging the moon's spirituality because i feel like that's also you know because most of the time like when you hex someone or or jinx someone or or whatever it's less of like a it's not always like go away or it's not usually like a death curse or like a disappear it could even be something like may your like car get stuck in the mud or may your every red on your way to work yeah 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 yeah. So I feel like, I don't know, maybe like then the moon would have like bad energy. <laughs> <laughs> moon has bad energy. Everybody goes crazy. No, honestly, though, like it maybe would just make the full moon even more chaotic than the full moon is now. It's kind of like how like this is total sidebar. Well, not a total sidebar, but thinking about like hexing the moon just makes me think about how like all these stories are always like two moons and it always annoys me. Because I'm like, but what about the tides? Um, how strong they'd be when the moons line up. Oh, my God. Maybe we should. What if we cast a fertility right on the moon to gain a second moon? Moon burst of the moon. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, God. Might be interesting, like, to see what would happen. I feel like it would just throw things into utter chaos. I wonder what spiritual... That could be... This is a, could be another spirit... Well, we'll put a pin in this spiritual si- shower thought, but I wonder what spirituality would look like or what aspects of moon worship would be different um or moon rites would be different if there were two moons listen you know what probably happen is instead of the moon just being feminine we probably have a masculine okay listen okay let me just qualify this by saying that i know people don't like masculine and feminine terms why can't we have lesbian moons (laughs) i do feel like we we, like people would separate them in some way because we love dualism for some reason Um, and we'd be like, this moon does this, and like this moon does this, and then like, I don't know. How how do you even find the moon from the moon? <laughs> the moon under science this. I mean, happened. didn't isn't there a theory? Isn't there a theory that the moon that there was once a second smaller moon? I put moon in quotes because I'm not an astronomer. I don't know the designation of random things in space but i think one of the theories was that there had been a second moon that smashed into our moon or like a min i don't know like a how jupiter has like eight million moons 
you know the t- the technical number is <laughs> Jupiter has eight million moons. Got to have all those coins flying around the planet of of Shurian, bringing forth wealth. No, I have no idea. I'm not an astronomer, so I couldn't answer that. So, like planetary magic wise, if we're, if we're replacing the moon, because because obviously we're gonna replace it with something. What are we replacing it with? Another moon from Jupiter? Can we borrow one? Or like Pluto maybe could come back? Um, we would replace it with a meteor shower because that has lots of folklore associated with it. Right? Right. How would we get another planet? Oh, we can bring Pluto back in. Just bring Pluto back. Oh, God. Is Pluto going to be our new moon? I feel like that would have no plan intended. That would have astronomical consequences. You're probably right. Just isn't Pluto like a generational planet, right? So like if we bring Pluto into the like where the moon was, yeah, that could be bad. Oh well. <laughs> oh 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 well. <laughs> That's what you get for asking the moon. <laughs> oh god. I just can feel astrologers cringing so hard at this. Yeah, or... Nike and Kath, if you're listening to this episode, <laughs> you should just click off. Okay. Any other thoughts about that? Before we move on. No, but I'll definitely be thinking about it tonight. Cool, you can put it in for the next episode outline. <laughs> it, it is actually a full moon tomorrow, or like it's oh very gosh, nearly right. a full moon tonight. Isn't it the so. blue moon? Is that what it is? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Listen, I never remember when it's a full moon. Actually, I get an inkling because people go like batshit crazy, like two days before and two days after. And so I'm like, what the fuck is happening? And then I'm like, oh, it's a full moon. Yep, that's what's going on. Another question submitted by Kat. If humans were suddenly able to see more colors or shades like mantis shrimp, would this change common color correspondences? Hanny, I'm throwing it to you because you were the one who brought up shrimp seeing colors in that one episode. Yeah, and actually, I have an apology to make because I was wrong. I was repeating a popular myth about mantis shrimp, which is not true. Um, You can't trust anyone these days. So apparently the mantis shrimp thing was actually a misreporting of a study and mantis shrimp don't actually see more colors than us. However, um, there is a, a, a related question in maybe how colorblind people uh, would perceive color correspondences. So maybe let's just kind of roll with this question. Um, but I apologize for the, the misinformation. Just, we can even just talk about is like, what if we could see more, right? Like, what if you weren't limited to the visible spectrum and we could see beyond? see beyond no i'm kidding just like see beyond the visible structure there is and i'm just looking this up right now to see if it has been disproven i believe that there was several years ago a discovery of some sort of i don't think it was full tetrachromatic woman but i definitely like saw thing more things than she should have and there is like a genetic condition specifically with people with two x chromosomes of a chance an extraordinarily rare chance but a chance of being a tetrachromat i think there's like last time i checked there was like seven confirmed tetrachromats in the entire world in 2010 after 20 years of study a woman with four types of cones neuroscientist dr gabriel jordan identified a woman who could detect a greater variety of color than trichromats could corresponding with a functional true tetrachromat so there are people who are not uh, non-functional tetrachromats meaning they have an extra what did i just say cone cone yeah (laughs) thank you thank you cone i always forget who had an extra cone but they're not like functional but i believe there was a woman there's like only a handful of women who have a functional like fourth cone 
Although I know the reason why I was looking it up is because I know that there's obviously some debate around that. And she also paints as well. And her paintings are really interesting. I'll make sure to try to find them and include them in the show notes. But they're really interesting because they're like very oddly colored in which she like adds things. And she's like, yeah, these go together. Uh, people are like, huh? <laughs> like, and she had no idea that she was a tetrachromat. I forget. I think she might have had a, had a suspicion. They were like looking for people to do a color study. And I think she had a suspicion that like maybe she saw colors a bit differently but she to my knowledge is like there's only like a couple of confirmed true like true tetrachromats um so i would be curious to see what she would think about like color correspondences because obviously she would then see colors for things that aren't out there but also like how does it how does it work when you have uh, tetra- if you're a tetrachromat like do you just see obviously like there's a limited spectrum like a limited electromagnetic spectrum of color so are you just seeing like additional like are you are you separating things out into additional colors within the visible light spectrum or because you're, you're presumably not like seeing uv this is a, this is a really stupid <laughs> stupid question but i guess i'm just wondering is is it just like being able to separate things out more because then maybe you could just say it's more of a kind of in-between thing and maybe you could see just more nuance in correspondences right that's the, i think that was the question that people had with her oh i just looked her up her name is i think her name is conchetta antico apparently she's a wiccan so maybe she does have opinions about color correspondences i did not know that let me just make sure that this is the okay yes it is conchetta antico who is the one of the only confirmed true tetrachromats, I believe. I am not entirely sure because that was the question that other people had when they were like reviewing the studies that had been done on her was that they pointed out that she, you know, is an artist. And so because she's an artist, they were like, does that mean that she's just able to like, yeah, like how I think someone that I was reading, they pointed out how it's like, so you go to a, a paint store and you look at blue and you're like, these are all blue. But then someone might see something and be like, oh, well, this is seafoam green, actually. And and this is azure. Like, so you have different names for different shades of the same color. So that was the question with her is because she's an artist, does that mean that she just sees things better? Yeah, so I was just Googling while you were... It looks like it's more of a heightened sense of color, so things appear brighter, and it looks like maybe a singular color is more divided, um, like, amongst the spectrum. So just like what I was saying, like, blue to her, there might be, like, four different blues in one blue that we see. There's more definition behind a separation of color, so it's more of a gradient than, like, how we see, which is interesting. But, like, I also wonder how specific would you get with color correspondence, right? Like... I even, I think in, in the magical community, sometimes it's, I don't really see a lot of like more odd colors, like, I don't know, teal or fuchsia or macaroni yellow. <laughs> Listen, there's a crayon named that and it's ridiculous. Like, I don't ever see or hear of those colors really being incorporated into magic. Like, it's usually more of the, like the base and the primary, primary, secondary colors that we see. So the red, the yellow, the green and all of that, even tertiary really, orange, purple, whatever that we see in magic, um, these like really obvious color correspondences. So I, have you all ever heard of people using like more, my words are failing me right now, um, out there colors for lack of a better word in, in magic? Uh, no, but then I say that, I say that, but then I'm like, 
I would not use certain things because of their particular shape. Like I have some pastel colored candles, for example. And for some workings, I would consider pastels like too gentle. I, I, I don't know. Does that, does that make any sense? Like it, I think it's, it's very personal though. And that's, that, that's definitely not a universal thing. That's just a thing in my head. So maybe it's just very kind of unique to the individual. I don't I mean, I think that's a thing, right? Like people, for instance, if we're talking about like love magic, I don't like love magic all that much, but like, let's just use it for an example. Um, red is like passionate sex drive kind of thing, but like a pastel pink would be more like soft love, like gentle, you know, engagement and whatever. So I do think that like pastel versus bold color can definitely have a difference. Like a lot, like for instance, if I were going to do some workings with like, uh, I don't know, let's go with Jupiter. I would probably use a dark purple candle and not a lavender candle because the lavender candle does not hold the same energy as like royal purple. Um, so I do think like pastels and, and darker and bolder colors, like do have an impact on color correspondence? Um, like you said, there are certain things that I would use for some things like pastel pink for like a softer kind of like self-love type deal versus like, I'm not going to use lavender for a Saturn candle because that just feels wrong. Like an uwu <laughs> Saturn. <laughs> pastel grunge Saturn. Listen, using like a pastel purple for Saturn is be like, ooh, take Saturn to the to Starbucks and we're going to order like chocolate chip frappes or something. But then how does this work if you're, if you're colorblind? So say you're like red, green, colorblind. How does how do color correspondences work? Like, are you going to see green and associate that with Mars? Because they're all kind of a. I, I think I think it's that they all kind of appear as as one color, right? That's so so wild. they they appear as variations of gray. So actually, I work with somebody who is is red green color blind. It was funny because I had a spreadsheet for like supplies and stuff, and it was like red is what we need, green is what we're good with, and he asked me to change the colors because he was like, I'm ready in clarifying, so I don't know like what what it is. I just see different variations of gray, and I was like, oh can do. <laughs> um, so in that case, maybe either you just don't use the colors, I guess, or you maybe learn to associate the different shades of gray with the colors. And like, that's enough. Um, I would imagine they just choose other colors, right? Like most things have more than one color correspondence. Like for money, green is the classic color correspondence, but like you could also use gold and yellow and a couple of others. And like for um, Mars, right? If you didn't want to use red, you could just use black or even brown if you want to go with the agricultural side of Mars. So there's like, I would just imagine they probably don't use the colors because they can't see them, which like sucks, but you know. Please tell us on our Discord server, if you are red, green, colorblind, how does this work for you? I am curious. Yeah, let us know. We can chat about it in the Discord. That'd be fun. My mind's going like 800 different places because of course it is. Yeah, it also makes me think how true, and I was trying to do some little bit of research and I didn't really get there. How true is the idea of people did not see blue? Have you ever heard that before? Like how in the Odyssey, the ocean is referred to as the wine dark sea and the ancient Greeks like never use blue and that the ancient Egyptians are some of the only people to actually like have a word for blue. And I, I have not actually looked into too much how true that concept is, but I, I was reading something a while back about a tribe of people who had the same word for blue and orange. And in studies, when they were shown blue and orange, they could not differentiate between the two of them. So it was almost like a culturally induced colorblindness in a sense. Yeah. So that that was just something, because I mean, language affects so many 
things, like having a word for something. And it's obviously not like they didn't, they looked into the ocean and saw it as gray. That's not exactly that, but it's like maybe they saw blue as a different shade of something else. I'm not sure. And I, I did try to do a little bit of research, but I just came across a bunch of pop science articles and i was like no this is not what i want and i've done a little bit of research into it but i can't remember the exact conclusion but yeah it's like there's not really a word for blue that's used for a long time in history yeah i've heard about this as well um i i'm again i'm not an expert but i've heard it's specifically blue and green are often conflated um i think in japanese definitely and some other languages as well but my understanding is that they are often described separately. There's just not an independent word for them, if that makes sense. Right. So, so it's almost, yeah, it's like, it's like you said. So it's, it's almost like they're part. shades of each other. Yeah, it's like the shades of each other. It's as if you are like, say you're like a tetrachromat. Like, it's like we're the tetrachromats in historic. Does that make sense? Like, they're, they're able to, we're able to separate them out because we have the language to do that. But that doesn't mean that they were not separated out. It's just that they were kind of seen as a continuum. Which I guess is not necessarily untrue. And if you think of things like the sea, like it changes quite a lot according to the presence of algae and things. So if you're using a, a term which is uh, descriptive of your environment, I guess I can kind of see where that comes from. Sort of bullshitting a bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that is really interesting. Like there's a level of, of cultural encoding. And I think even in Japanese, they didn't have a term for pink until fairly recently. Like it's an imported term. So this is still relevant today it's not even just a historical thing right yeah like pink isn't really a a separate color from red if you think about it but we kind of associate it as a separate color but it's really not or the amount of times oh my god this water bottle that that i have this water bottle that i have my mom calls this red. What color do you call yeah that's red that's definitely red i mean i'm watching you through a tiny screen but this is hot pink what? No. This is pink. No, it's not. It's red. I'm going to take a picture. I'm going to take a picture and send this to the Discord and ask everyone what color this is. Oh my God. That's 100% red. No. Welcome to the TTAC lab, everybody. This is what we do. Okay. So, while okay, that anyway, back to this. <laughs> while, that, while that goes through. Okay. Let's see. Can we, can we answer the question? Can we move on? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. We can move on. Okay. So this next one is for Hanny and Fell specifically. And it is, the question is, certain traditions such as Hellenism venerate heroes in a manner similar to the gods. Examples include um, Heracles, Oedipus, and I don't know how to pronounce the last name. Someone help me. Academos. Thank you. So could this still happen today or is the hero cult a thing of the past? And if it could, then who might qualify for hero status in our modern world? I would just like to say that Dwayne the Rock Johnson will probably qualify. <laughs> wow. Okay. That just landed out. That, that just you just came straight in with somebody. I was thinking like I really don't know who could if you could receive this great honor, and you're like Dwayne the Rock Johnson definitely. <laughs> I actually have like a lot of thoughts about this. I absolutely believe that you can do like you can hero worship people. I would say probably not living people because that seems a bit weird because honestly i think hero worship is more about honoring worshiping the legacy and venerating their legacy than it is the actual person like one of my best friends they like work with queer youth and they're just really all about queer history and they actually like made an offering in a form almost like a hero a hero cult to one of like a very important historical figure to them personally yeah and like i've heard of other people doing similar things with i believe it was oh my god laura tempest zakroff i think it was her who in her book 
mentioned Colleen, Doreen Valiente specifically and honoring Doreen Valiente. So I definitely believe it's absolutely a thing. And like hero, hero cults, for those of you who don't know, it's actually very similar to like Saint Veneration, like uh, Religion for Breakfast actually did a whole video on how similar Saint Veneration is to the, the Hellenic idea of hero cults. But it was basically this idea. So like, let's say you were worshiping Achilles, you would go to Achilles gravesite well Achilles and Patroclus because they're buried together and they're usually worshipped together whatever <laughs> throw that out there and you would go to their gravesite and you would like pour a drink offering for them and this could be kind of like alcohol water and like make an offering and call them in, in in the same way that people kind of call in saints and they're often kind of seen not necessarily as intercessors with the gods like saints are but they were seen as being closer to humans and so thus being very popular and more accessible so i absolutely think that like you could hero worship someone's legacy it's basically just like ancestor worship if you think about it like ancestor of profession ancestor of area ancestor of community it's, it's basically just ancestor veneration Hanny, this is a interesting thought for you what if we use that idea for like because I think we talked about it in a previous episode, right? Like you have your PI who then mentors people and then like they mentor people and then they mentor people and it becomes like this whole family tree. It'd be interesting to do something along the lines maybe with that where like the original person that started with is like someone that you, that'd be weird though. I don't, does anybody love their PI enough to like worship them? I don't. I think the PI is like to believe that. But whether or not maybe I like to believe it, but it doesn't mean it's true. That's just a thought that I randomly had. Yeah, I quite like that because I think a lot of the time, the the, the issue I think I have, because you see that, yeah, ancestor worship is a really good analogy. The issue I have with it happening today is that a lot of the hero worship was kind of based on legends which were very warped over time. They, They were combined with local folklore. Sometimes you'll find like the legends of heroes, uh, different heroes will actually cross over with one another. And so I think today we're so close to um, people that we, we we have more accurate records and we can't kind of mythologize them as easily as we maybe once could. We don't have that same distance. But the idea of doing it with kind of knowledge and the lineage of the knowledge that was passed down, I guess it's kind of almost making them into an egregore of themselves, if that, if that makes some sense. You're doing, You're working with the ideas of them more than the person themselves. Does that make sense? Makes sense to me. I, I was just going to say, like, there are people who I think maybe meet, like, cult status, but they are not 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 in, like, a pleasant way. Like, I can think, like, Donald Trump, for example, has definitely met, like, hero worship status in, in some senses by some people, but that doesn't... I don't think that's in the same kind of way. However, I do think there's there are kind of analogies there with, like, the idea of somebody becoming bigger than them and their kind of image being passed around. Like there are some, there are maybe some parallels there, um, unfortunate ones. Definitely not hero and, and, and anti-hero even if there were any. But um. So next question. Okay, so background, right? We hear people say all the time that like Rosemary can stand in for any herb. And I personally don't think that's true. And I don't know if either of you think that's true. I think you might've talked about it before, but I don't remember. So the question is whether we can genetically engineer rosemary to give it additional correspondences. 
And if we could do that, then could you actually use rosemary for everything? And I kind of already started giving my opinions, so I will continue. Like I said earlier, I don't think rosemary is a substitute for everything. It has its place in a lot of different things that can be used for, but that is not everything. It's only a select number of things. In a way, I think we need to consider what correspondence actually comes from in this particular question. Of course, if you haven't already, you can always refer back to our recent episode on Swedenborg, who actually pioneered the term um, correspondence. But if this actually happens and genome editing is a way to incorporate additional correspondences, then we are claiming <clears throat> that it's based on DNA, right? Or the phenotype, um, assuming that there's a genetic connection to that. And while I love the thought of that, being able to genetically engineer a plant to have additional correspondences, I don't personally think that correspondences come from the genomic makeup or phenotypic expression of that genome. I think they come more from like a folkloric standpoint and also a like macrocosm, uh, microcosm correspondence. So love the idea. Don't think it's actually practical. What do you think, Annie? Yeah, I think it depends because I, th I think you would have to add like tons of complex features, which genetically is just not, with our current genome editing, it would not be possible. Like I could see, for example, if you wanted to add protection, you could do something very literal, like add thorns because lots of thorny plants are associated with protection. If you wanted to add purification, we know that lots of uh, plants associated with purity either have antimicrobial properties, which rosemary already does, or they have like white flowers because uh, like hyssop, for example, is associated with the white of cleansing and the Bible is also just white is associated with, with cleanliness. So let's say we make the flowers white, we give it some thorns. But like, I don't know how far you could take this. Uh, it, would, it would look like some a really messy, like super mutant plant by the end of it. And like you say, some of, I'm not sure how you would necessarily add the more folkloric things, which are being more integrated over time. I think it's an interesting idea. Because what they're cultural, think? right? And like, how do you how do you genetically encode culture into a plant? I mean, like... a lot of them are like visually based. So I think that you, you could do you could do quite a lot with the phenotype because a lot of a lot of things like I don't know, say blessed herb for example. Like, it's not just randomly blessed herb, but it it does come from the folklore because it has three uh, leaves, and the three leaves are supposed to represent the Trinity, for example. So you could in incorporate like the numerology into uh, like a in some kind of leaf shape. So there, there, are, there are things that you could do, but it's just about whether that would be like a recognizable, like you'd have to probably get a little bit creative with it. If we're talking about things like flowers and stuff, I do think you could like change the color of the petals, right? To represent one thing or another. Like that is relatively easy to do genetically. And also like you said, like leaf shape, I don't know how much we'd actually be able to control that. Like there'd be, there would be more variables, I think, than we maybe actually think there are. I don't know, I'm not a plant biologist. I'm curious to know what you think about, okay, so I saw this video on TikTok. This is such a segue from this topic a little bit, but you know the classic experiment where you have like a white flower and you put it into food, dye, and water and it like absorbs it and it turns the leaves colors? So do you think you could use that as like color correspondence alongside the plant correspondence? Like, does synthetic dye add that? I don't know why it wouldn't. Technically, most mm. colored clothing is like dye-based, right? Uh, yeah, I, 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 get, I don't really see a reason why it wouldn't work, but I also wouldn't do it myself. I, mean, I, don't, know why, I don't know why you would do it, but like, just a thought. Like, yeah, 
it's kind of it's kind of janky you know like uh, yeah I, it just 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 buy some different herbs instead of spending millions on CRISPR or I like the idea of just like this is impossible by the way because the plants would be too uh distantly related but just like breeding every plant in your apothecary together and <laughs> and just seeing what wins and, and just getting some kind of like super mutant out of that listen be your own Gregor Mendel and just start like cross-pollinating everything have fun go for it do what kind of weird crap you get Every year, my garden, we always have mystery squash. Uh, last year, we had a, an acorn squash that got cross-pollinated with the spaghetti squash. This year, I have no idea what it's going to be. It appeared to be a pumpkin at first, but now it's starting to look like another acorn squash and also like a butternut squash. So we'll see what it turns out to be. Because they hybridize like crazy, right? Like they're, they're just mental um, you know. Yeah. I've had zucchini butternut squash. <laughs> I mean, they're not edible, but they, like, blend really weirdly. And you're like, oh, what's happening here? (laughs) You're like, what? Yeah, cross-pollinate everything, especially flowers. You know, if you, you know, people, how they um, graft things onto other trees. Mm -hmm. Does that change its correspondence or does it create a new one? Could you create, like, a a crazy tree? Take like Well, we're, like, just graft loads of different things on. I'm sure it's been done. (laughs) Somebody just grab every in? something that has every correspondence um, onto a tree. Yeah, there you go. So go on vacation across the world. Take if if you're if the tree says yes, take parts of trees from around the world. Come home, strip bark off one of your trees, and then just stick it all together and see what grows. That'd be fun. I wonder that if you get like different branches from all the different sections, or if it would like somehow come together in this like weird mutant thing and produce like a totally new tree. I don't know. I think usually grafted trees is just the branches. It is, yeah. But we were discussing this the other day because somebody was saying that if you graft like a root stock from something cold hardy onto something that is not cold hardy, then you improve the cold hardiness of the whole thing because they share a circulatory system. So yes, the branches will probably produce the same fruit, but I kind of like the idea that they all have the same kind of like lifeblood, if you like. <laughs> I guess you could kind of assume that that's how they combine. But also, if you believe in like a spirit model of, of plants, then how is that working? Are you just like forcing loads of different spirits into one tree body, like some kind of Frankenstein? It's kind of unpleasant when you think of it that way. <laughs> that's an interesting question. I don't know if the spirits would be too happy, to be totally honest. Or it's like how um, like hydroponics are like a really new thing. Does something, making something hydroponic, does that change its correspondence at all by making it live in water? Constantly running water? No fire correspondences anymore. <laughs> well, I don't know. Change the correspondence? I don't know. Change something about it. I mean, we definitely change the, the plan because it's going to have to adapt to the new environment. Like, it's not going to be the same. All right. No more thoughts. Well, we have arrived at the most important point of this episode, which is determining what color Fell's water bottle is. And the Discord chat has said... So the conclusion, uh, most people are wrong. Um, most people <laughs> got not got eight votes for red and three votes for hot pink. So conclusion, Fella's just too stubborn to recognize that her water bottle is actually red. It's pink! Whatever. But we should test it's... for the chromosomes because, yeah, maybe maybe we got tetrachromads in there. Like, maybe they're seeing... Yeah. Maybe you're a tetrachromad, Fell, and, and we just can't see your, like, super yeah. Yeah, I'm just too cool. You know, people like with the blue dress, that craziness. Uh, I'm going to put this into Photoshop and I'll post the conclusion in our Discord, which is a good plug for our Discord. If you want to know the conclusion to what Photoshop 
thinks my water bottle is. Yeah, do join the Discord. We have we have lots of fun over there. Sometimes we're a little crazy, but you know, you love it. You all love it. It's fine. We're going to call it. That's great. And yeah, come join our Discord if you want to. It'll be linked in the episode description if I remember, which I haven't recently. That's okay. I'll fix it. And then we also have a YouTube channel. If you haven't subscribed, go do that. We do update it on occasion when we have time. So feel free to enjoy. Enjoy the chaos. This was fun. Definitely more loose lip than normal. Thank you, Mugworty. Thanks, Mugwort. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we're going to sign off. All right. Have a great day, everybody. And we will see you next week.